Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, session 462. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 462 you're listening to. My guest today is well-known and well-loved studio manager of East West Studios. That would be Candace Stewart joining us today. We're going to talk all about her journey in the world of studio management and studio owners. This is one of those episodes you should pay extra close attention to because Candace is going to lay out some incredible wisdom here, and I'm really happy that she's here. And I got to thank former WCA guest David Davis for helping connect Candace and I, and we're going to have a great discussion here. So Candace Stewart coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about expanding our experiences. So we get into this mode where we just do the things that we do in the world of audio. And we all love it. I know we're, many of us are very obsessed. We, we do a full day of, of audio work and then we go home and we read uh, you know, one of our favorite magazines, watch some YouTube videos or one of our subscriptions based on our uh, you know, based on audio stuff, we just continually operate within the world of audio. Meanwhile, some of us are neglecting the other experiences in life that can better inform how we do our audio or how we do the business of our audio. So I'm here to give a short rant on encouraging you to do other shit, right? Don't just do audio, right? Get out ride a bike, walk on the beach, read some books, read some magazines, talk to people who do not do anything related to what we do. Have conversations and have experiences where you travel to other places and you don't do anything audio related. You know, take up a hobby, whether that's photography or cooking, whatever is your jam, home whiskey making, if, it, if that's what you want to do. And the reason I encourage you to do that is because when we get away from audio, when we get away from anything that we're super hyper-focused on, it enables us to really see the forest for the trees and have a different perspective on the thing that we truly love, speaking of audio. We get different perspectives and then we see it from different angles. And when we see it from different angles, we see the strengths, we see the weaknesses in what we're doing. By talking to other people in other industries who do other things, and finding out what their world is like, we definitely come up with ideas, at least I have, come up with ideas of a different way to approach audio. And you know me, I'm a big fan of cherry picking ideas from different areas and cherry picking concepts from any place, whether you're talking to somebody who washes dishes, to somebody who's a hedge fund manager, to somebody who uh, works at fast food, to somebody who's a doctor or a lawyer, or somebody who just sells stuff on Etsy, you know? No point in naming everything, but you get the point. Talking to people outside of our world, seeing how they operate their business, seeing how they operate their life, helps us see the audio thing from a different angle. And we may glean some ideas in how they're operating and we might think, huh, okay, that's interesting. I could apply that version or the audio version of that in this way to my audio practice. And that could be anything from money management to client management to the actual practice of audio itself to how you hear music. Because also the thing that is always fascinating to me is to see how other people look at music. Not just how they look at the industry and worry about who's gonna be on the Grammys, you know, on television, but how music plays a part in their life. And when we see that, or, or movies too in games, we see the end result of what we do, right? You wanna be able to know, it's like, it's not all about us, right? Ultimately, it's these people that we're talking to 
that we are making these things for games, music, film, whatever. They're the end consumer. They're the end result. So when we talk to them and we see how these entertainment things find their place in their life, and then we see how they run their life, run their business, run their their ideas, their viewpoint of the world, it's, it's interesting to take that research back to our world and apply it and or think about it when we are creating the things that we're a part of creating. That's about it. It's all about getting out and getting out of our little audio echo chamber. So rather than spending some time doing all the stuff we typically do, break the routine, maybe one or two days a week, think about doing something outside of the world of audio that can better inform your world of audio so that you are a more well-rounded, more well-read, more well-educated person when it comes to audio. And I think that you'll find you will have a, a more favorable view of your audio practice and you'll have a new a newfound enthusiasm for what it is we do. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Let's get to it. Candace Stewart here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Candace, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, dude. Absolute pleasure. I'm going to dive right in. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, what I consider the best city in the country. <laughs> and brothers or sisters growing up? You know, I have three older brothers and they're a super important part of my personal uh, life. I have three older brothers and the two oldest had a band. They're nine and seven years older. And I have a third brother who's five years older. But Rick and Steve, the two older boys, they had a band in our hometown early on, like when they were like 14, when I was a little kid. And they started playing around. My dad was an electrical engineer and designed like their speakers and amps and shit and toured them in a little trailer. They did like Navy bases and stuff. But Later, they got to be really popular. They had their own nightclub out on Folly Beach, which is the beach at the end of the island. I grew up on an island called James Island. They had a club when I was like nine, and then they got pretty big. They had different names, but they opened for the Almond Brothers hmm. and bands that were in the Southeast. And so they turned me on to a lot of music, obviously. There was a lot of shenanigans going on. This was the 60s morphing into the early 70s. So there was a lot of, uh, <laughs> yeah. There was a lot of experimentation happening with, uh, you know, substances. Substances, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Were you interested in, in music from a playing perspective? Did you play in band at all in school? Back to the brothers. I'm the only person in my family who doesn't play an instrument. My older brother started violin and, and is now an incredibly fine blues guitar player still. He's back in Charleston after being in Hawaii for 40 years. But he plays all the time, and he's an engineer, too. And my second oldest brother, Steve, is in Seattle, teaches at a recording program. He was an incredible bass player. Mm -hmm. My third brother played piano but ended up being a photographer. My mom was a painter who also played piano. And my father actually didn't play anything. But, yeah, I never did. They offered, they offered lessons, and I actually was kind of a little bit of a jock. I went into soccer and surfing and stuff. <laughs> What were your parents pushing or were they pushing on any kind of trajectory for you for the future? My parents were so amazing. I mean, my dad was a freaking genius. He survived Normandy, you know, oh. met, met my mom in Pasadena, interestingly enough, in 1948 on February 2nd, married her March 4th. My brother was born in December. You know, a whole wow. different level of gratitude for being alive. <laughs> Yeah. And my mom was 10 years younger from North Carolina, came from a sort of an upper crust family. And my father came from sort of a lower, lower brow family, one of 10 kids. But they were just amazing. I mean, they were intellectuals. They were nice. They were fun. They were cool. We did lots of trips. You know, they took us everywhere. We did a lot of camping trips and a lot of at the time, I didn't realize it until I was a little older, but my mom was bipolar. And when I was a kid, I just thought she was fun. You know, she'd rip down the curtains and tie dye them and, you know, spend 500 bucks on flowers. And it was a fun and not bohemian because my dad had a stable job, but it was just a very 
artistic household. Mm-hmm. And they were very intellectual, both of them. Like family dinners was books, talking about books and philosophy. And Oh, wow. I told, I told them that I thought the Bible was a historical fantasy. <laughs> they, they thought that was good. We didn't have to go to church after we were like 10. But they were there was definitely spirituality. And my, my mom had been raised Episcopalian, so we kind of attended... Episcopalian church, which we loved. Uh-huh. I probably went till I was a teenager. My dad worked for Lockheed and ended up being subcontracted. So we would, wherever we would live, would be coastal. So I was born in Fontana, California. And then they moved to Washington State, Eastern Washington, for a second. And then they moved to South Carolina when I was about three. And then when I was in fifth grade, we moved to Virginia Beach, Virginia, kept our house in South Carolina. Virginia Beach was super fun. Yeah, that was like 11 to 13, 14. That was super fun. And then went back to South Carolina and started high school. You know, I was the cool kid. As far as when you were in high school, were your interests still like sports oriented, like soccer and such that you mentioned? I was actually pretty bookish and kind of a stoner, but I, you know, I kept the straight and narrow. I was, I made really good grades. And then my dad died when I was real young. My dad died right before my 16th birthday. And I had, because I'd gone to school in Virginia Beach, Virginia starts high school in eighth grade. Mm -hmm. So when I moved back to South Carolina, I already had like biology, algebra, I already had like high school credits. So I went and I took 11th grade English in summer school and I skipped the 11th grade. So I graduated from high school when I was 16. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Did you go to college? I did. I immediately went to the college of Charleston. What did you study? What was your major? You know, my initial major was linguistics, and then I changed from linguistics to uh, geology, Mm -hmm. and I really wanted to be a diamond cutter, and I was doing really, really well, and I had applied for some internships with, like, Harry Winston and Van Cleef and Arpel and stuff like that. I was, there's a few jumping off points between 16 and there, but because I I stopped and went to the Bahamas when I was, like, 18, then I moved to Vancouver for a while. But I came back to the College of Charleston, I was 19 maybe, and I was pursuing geology. And my teacher had to inform me that because I was a woman and because I was an Israeli, the chances of me, mainly because I was an Israeli, that the chances of me getting an internship were slim and that I should seek another path. So I became a psych major. Wow. <laughs> Which is perfect, actually, with a business minor. So yeah, oh, yeah, it yeah. Being perfect for the studio business. Did you finish your degree there? I didn't. I, I was 20 hours short and I, I came to California. What was the cause of coming to California? Well, I had moved from Charleston to Greenville for love. I fell uh, in love with this uh, guy who was a comedian. We're still really good friends. His name is Jeff Summerall. He was a writer for Saturday Night Live, a little bit older than me. Cool, super cool guy. And I moved to Greenville, South Carolina, which now is very cool. But in 1982 was not really my speed having come from a coastal town, blah, blah, blah. And I was a bartender for a very long time. I was a bartender all through college because you could drink when you were 18, when I was 18. Mm -hmm. So I was bartending and working, and my brother David, who's closest to me, got married in 1983 or 84. And I flew out to LA to go to his wedding, and I went back to Greenville, and I said to my boyfriend, I'm like, yeah, I'm too big for this town. I got to (laughs) go. And so I drove across country by myself, yeah, I didn't really have a great plan, but I had lived in LA a couple times before that. I'm skipping around, but I had lived in LA after living in Vancouver for a minute as well when I was 18. But yeah, so I was like 24 maybe, and I came out and I was bartending. In I got, LA? Yeah, I got a job working for the two hot tamales. They're kind of famous here. Uh, Mary Sue Milliken and Susan, they're famous chefs in LA. They have a lot of restaurants here now. I was bartending at night and my brother, Steve, my two older brothers have worked at the record plant hmm. in the very early 70s. So when I would come out and visit in high school, I met Rose and Paula and all these people when I was a teenager. And so Steve left the record plant, went to Rusk, was the chief engineer there. Rusk is still open. I just want to interrupt you for a sec just to keep the audience up to speed. When we talk about Rose, we're talking about Rose who managed or manages the village. Is that right? No, Rose managed the record plant. The record plant. Sorry. And then Paula, is that Paula Salvatore? Yeah, Paula Salvatore managed that. So Rosemann Cherney 
managed, she was Roseman, then she became Roseman Churney because she married Ed Churney. Ed Churney, right. And made Ed rest in peace. And she ran the record plant for a very long time. Okay. And she's sort of the grand dame of what we do. Paula and then me kind of fall in line behind her. It's interesting to note that almost all the studio managers are women. At some point, I want you to keep going. If you could, I'd like to discuss that at some point. Yeah, I don't really know why, but there you go. (laughs) I mean, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you my theory. But so what happened was my brother Steve had left the record plant. He was chief at Rusk, which is on La Brea here in L.A. And he leased a room at what was the old Kendon Recorders in Burbank. It's called Glenwood Place now, still open, Mm -hmm. 619 and 623 South Glenwood Place. And 619, the side that we leased, was called Take One. Steve was a great teacher. Obviously, because he'd worked at the record plant, he had relationships with the people that he'd come up with at the record plant, like Mike Clank and Dave Bianco and Jim Scott and people like that. So he called out to them to try to start building the clientele for the studio. And I started really just trying to learn how to be an assistant engineer, but I didn't get very far. I was more like a, a rudder receptionist. And I did do a couple things. I could align a tape machine and stuff like that. And I could run a tape machine. But pretty early on, I uh, realized that I didn't have the electronics aptitude to do it. If I, you know, I had a big enough ego that if I couldn't be like amazing, I didn't want to do it. <laughs> and so I went to him one day and I said, uh-huh. you know, I just don't think that I always tell the story. I had done a session with an engineer who is still alive, still with us, and he's blind. His name is Shell Tommy. And he was the nicest guy ever, but I'd done a session with him and he was amazing. And I'm like, okay, he's blind and he's amazing. And I'm never going to be that good. So I asked my brother, I think I'd like to do the booking. And my brother was super cool, super supportive. He said I was perfect for the role because he'd seen me bartend and he'd seen how people like responded to me in the bar. He thought that because I had a lot of experience in hospitality, I'd worked at a lot of hotels. I worked for like Hyatt and Sheraton and Hilton. And so I had a lot of that hospitality experience. So it was kind of a natural fit. I started trying to help him book. It was very grassroots, pre-internet. Shout out to Music Connection magazine, which is still around, and oh, REP yeah. and all those magazines because I got a lot of directories. And Rose helped me some too, Paula, obviously. And I just started cold calling people. Really, the first big project I booked was Mike Clint called up and had a band that had already recorded and everything needed to be re-recorded, needed a favor, blah, blah, blah. And that was Appetite for Destruction. So that was the first real project I booked. Wow. Yeah, it was fun. I have to ask you, though, did you even want to be an engineer? Initially, I thought I did. This is typical of me, right? It's like me being linguistics, me being geology and psychology. (laughs) Initially, I thought I did because uh-huh. I have such and still to this day incredible admiration for engineers. They're the unsung heroes of everything that we ever hear. I was fascinated by it and I feel very comfortable in the studio. So that was never an issue. And for all those women out there listening, no, people were totally cool. Nobody ever treated me weird because I was a woman. It was the opposite, actually. People were super cool. Maybe because I was, wasn't a woman, I don't know. But I think the important thing was that I did my best and tried to be kick-ass. It was all about, I had the fear of God. You know, they had trained at the record plant and there was that whole standard of excellence that we were striving for. So, But yeah, no, I liked it. I look back now and think I probably should have kept going, but I love what I do and I've been doing it a really long time now. Did you have early struggles with just getting your head wrapped around the concept of of managing a studio and doing bookings? Not really, because I had a business minor from school and I had worked in a lot of restaurants. I had been a sous chef early, early on when I was very young. When I was 16 and I was in school, I was a had worked in restaurants as a cook. So that I'd been a hostess, and then I was a bartender, mm-hmm. and then I had worked for hotels. And I was a freelance bartender for, for hotels when I was in my early 20s, which meant that Hyatt or Hilton, who I worked for, would send me to different locations and I would set up a bar in a conference room or you know a small suite and bartend for like a business meeting for business matters, something like that, which was really good training. You know, you have to be quiet, you have to be organized, you have to be hospitable and gracious. I, by the way, I think that's why a lot of women are managers. I think that not that men aren't hospitable and gracious, but I think it just kind of comes really naturally to women to be caretakers. And since most of the clients are men, I don't know, 
it comes easily to me. But uh, no, not really any concerns, to be honest. I mean, I was pretty black and white about having to make money. And yeah. so I knew early on, I set up budgets and knew how to set up spreadsheets about fixed expenses and leaving money in the budget for things that might come as a surprise out of the blue, building maintenance and stuff like that. But we leased that building, so we didn't own it. So a lot of the responsibility for building stuff was on the landlord. So that was, took care of one aspect of things. But no, you know, I just had to look at what how much he'd spent on gear and figure out what we needed to make, to figure out the monthly nut is to make a profit. I did a lot of taxes. I did a lot of accounting in those early years and a lot of bookkeeping, which was really good training. It's amazing to me the amount of, I mean, you you say you, you're kind of all over the place and you've tried all these different things, but I think that that's the beauty in it is that you try that. Okay. That's not for me. Try this. This is not for me. But along the way, you've picked up these valuable experiences and knowledge of these other industries to bring to the table to help run a studio and bring, especially in the hospitality area. Yeah. A hotel is exact. I mean, a studio is exactly like a hotel. A studio is a hotel with technology. That's it. You got to give people privacy. You got to get them what they need, leave them alone. Basically, you can get the money. <laughs> That's the hard part. Getting the money is the hard part. Oh, yeah. And I guess when major labels are involved, it complicates it even more because you're not necessarily getting it directly from the artist. You've got to go through the bureaucracy of the label, et cetera. Money from the major labels actually easier. Really? Having, having a PO is a guarantee of payment. I'd take one was a smaller studio. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't call it a B studio, but it was an overdub studio. So it was a sort of a second to middle tier price point. So in that sense, you did a lot of independent projects and you had to get paid by people that were self-funded. That was a thing. Learning how to get paid. If anybody's watching this and is going to open their own studio or wants to be a manager, you better learn how to get paid and be gracious in doing it because that is really the hurdle. Is that a matter of persistence? I think it's a matter of not being uncomfortable asking to get paid. I, I had this conversation with my assistant, Keith, pretty often because he's a little shyer than I am and feels a little weird asking about money. And I'm like, look, people expect to pay. You don't walk in and rent a car and not expect to give your credit card. You right. know, So I think it's just a matter of establishing that right up front, what the rate is, working out a deposit, getting a credit card or working out some type of payment arrangement. It's the first thing I do still to this day. Which helps keep the studio in business for sure. People want to get it out of the way. You know, creative people don't want to talk about money and get that out of the way, get that handled. And let's get on to the fun part of getting you what you need to do your record. What was the path you took in, in terms of the different studios that you've worked at throughout the years? Well, I worked, I worked at Take One, which was 619 South Flatwood. And then directly across the breezeway, there's a courtyard, was a separate independent studio competitor called Red Sound. And so my brother decided to go to Seattle, I think in 1990, maybe. I really didn't get rolling as a manager until 87. I think he left in 89 or 90. Great move on his part, by the way. So I walked across the breezeway and asked him if they needed a manager. And I feel kind of bad. The girl that was the manager, then they fired her and hired me. Wow. So yeah, and Red Sound was great. I, I worked in that complex for about 11 years and I obviously I met a lot of people there. I met someone at Red Zone that changed. My boss, Dennis Dagger, was great. He was an engineer and he was a great teacher. And it was great. He, we had a really good working relationship. He's, we're still friends now. He has a winery in Paso Robles. But a lot of the people that I worked with at Take One and a lot of the people that I worked with at Red Zone were my employees are now my clients. I always joke and say I'm just training my future client. <laughs> at Red Zone, I met someone who changed my life, and that was an English producer named John Porter. John was the bass player in Roxy Music. He was an independent producer. He produced all the Smiths mm. records, and he was a very successful producer. And he had just moved to the U.S. He moved to L.A., I believe, 90. And he, he just finished School of Fish, Three Strange Days. Or that, that might have been what we recorded, actually, that, that single. But John's real love is blues. He's a phenomenal guitar player, mm -hmm. but he also a bass player. And he produced some of Brian Ferry's solo stuff, not to be confused with John Punter, who also produced Roxy Music, but John Porter. You would probably know him from the Smiths, like How Soon Is Now and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But anyway, 
did a lot of blues records. So like Otis Rush, Taz Mahal, I met Buddy Guy, Keb Mo, people like that. So we did a lot of blues records. And then in 93, you, you can't make this shit up because <laughs> the, the, the journey is so, when I look back, it's so amusing. I got a call from a studio in Orange County and they were working with this British producer and he wasn't happy. The studio was called Front Page. And the manager and the tech, Charlie Watts is his name. No, not the guy in the Stones. Right. He's a mastering engineer now. He called me and he said, we've got this producer and he's not happy and he wants to come up to LA. Red Zone had an ADB. I tried an ADB. He said he wants to come up and he wants to work there. I said, okay, cool. And so I met them, Charlie Watson and the guy that owned Front Page in Costa Mesa named Biff Vincent. So in 93, I get another, that's early on, I get that call at Red Zone at like 90. And then in 93, I get another call from Biff and he says, hey, I'm going to go into partnership with Buddy King at Soundcastle. And we'd like you, we'd like you to consider being the manager at Soundcastle in Silver Lake. You know, and I'd been, I'd been in the old Kendon complex at Take One and Red Zone for almost 11 years. So I'd been in that same complex for a long time. And I was ready for more money challenge. Plus, Soundcastle was a super hit place. Dave Jordan had worked mm. there all the time and had done like Alice in Chains, Facelift, and Ritual to Habitual, Jane's Addiction. And I was like, oh, cool. I'm going to get to go do all this cool rock stuff. So I left and I went to Soundcastle to work for Biff and Buddy King. Their partnership dissolved and didn't happen. So I ended up staying and working for Buddy King, who I love, and his wife, Pat. Amazing people. I learned a lot from both of them. She was a badass old school secretary type, like shorthand and really good finance lady. And they had a rental company too that they eventually sold to Ocean Wave. So I worked at Soundcastle. But what happened was when I got to Soundcastle, Dave Jordan left, opened his own room, El Dorado. So the rock went away and it became gangster rap. So it was this kind of, <laughs> kind of hardcore gangster rap scene and i mean hardcore that's a 30 year old white woman from south carolina you know i didn't know i listened to the fucking pretenders i didn't know shit about gangster <laughs> rap you know what i mean but your job's your job so i learned quickly how to adapt and to deal with you know i'd been dealing with crazy rock stars now i was dealing with crazy rappers so i just uh you know i had a laundry basket and i would collect guns every morning and put them in a basket under my desk and like give a speech. A lot of the guys that were with me as, as assistants then at Soundcastle are still really good friends of mine today. And we look back and try to figure out how we made it through that one alive. Got to work with Tupac and Wu-Tang and some people that are no longer with us, like Biggie and Easy e and people like that and Pac, obviously. But uh, I met a lot of people back then, you know, Ice-T, Ice Cube. I met Snoop. He was like 16. Oh, wow. Exhibit from the Alcoholics, which someone just sent me a link the other day that I was that they actually recorded me on a track that I had totally forgotten about that I, I don't sing or anything, but I was talking. Welcome to LA. There you go. <laughs> That's from a track from the Alcoholics exhibit was the leader. But all the like Nate Dogg, all those early rappers. And again, you know, I didn't know shit about that. I mean, just like when I worked at Take One and Slash and Duff were like, have you listened to the record yet? I'm like, no. <laughs> Do you like Guns N' Roses? I'm like, no. You know, I was listening to Roxy Music and shit. I wasn't, I was a little bit older and it wasn't really my thing. Like the Bastard Pussycat, Wasp, Poison, Guns N' Roses step above, I will say, in a musicianship, sorry, other bands. But it just wasn't my thing. You know, I just saw Flash a couple months ago and he was laughing at me. He's like, did you ever grow to like it? And I'm like, well, yeah, you know, it's part of history now. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Soundcastle was good for me. Soundcastle, again, drilling home, getting paid. Yeah. You know, with Death Row. Mm. I wish I could remember the guy's name that was the main A&R guy. It wasn't Suge. It wasn't any of the owners. It was an A&R guy who really... I have to look up this guy's name at some point, but he got me paid. I don't know. He felt sorry for me or something. And back then you could hold on to tapes. You had collateral yeah. that you didn't release. And I remember having like a physical tug of war, tug of war with a reel of tape. But I think when I left Soundcastle, I maybe they rode like maybe 1400 bucks. 
I wish I could say that now. <laughs> East West probably has more bad debt than that right now. But it was very good. And a lot of those people I still work with now in the Wu-Tang Clan. And, you know, it's crazy. Everybody you meet, you know, be nice to the people on your way up, you know. <laughs> hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. And wasn't there a studio in, is it Pasadena that you worked at? I did. I worked at Firehouse. That was kind of later in the journey, but interesting segue when I was working at Soundcastle. Soundcastle is now called Pulse, owned by Scott Cutler and Josh Abrams, and it's in Silver Lake. I just went to a party there last week. It's They're amazing, and they have a label. It's super cool. But Soundcastle is two separate buildings. In the front, when it was Soundcastle, there was an SSL in the front, and at the back was a separate building, and there was a Neve in that. And it was originally the headquarters for JBL, so it was this super cool, architecturally cool building from the 70s with like glass walls and stuff like that. And it was a studio Baltones and George Oxberger in the front room. So all those people, Vincent Van Hoff, redid some stuff in the back in the Neve room. But the point being that Tina Clark, who is the owner of Firehouse in Pasadena, long before she owned Firehouse, she was my client at Soundcastle. Mm. And she came in and she did a session. A good friend of mine was her engineer, a guy named Les Cooper. And she came in and did a session and there was a technical issue and there was some downtime or something. And I gave her 500 bucks off the bill. So that's in 1993 or 94 maybe. So transfer later to 2005 after I've been where I am now, which is 6,000 Sunset, which was called Cello, which we skipped a chapter. So right, right. I'm going to segue in the, the chapter that then leads us to Firehouse. So I, John Porter, the English producer, the reason he changed my life in so many ways besides being my friend, I was at Soundcastle. It was 1998. He called me up and said, hey, I'm doing a record with Taj Mahal in New Orleans. I met this wealthy guy. He wants to buy a studio. We're thinking about buying 6,000 Sunset. Every studio person in town was aware of Western recorders and Oceanway recorders. The East building that, that is the 6,000 building where I sit now, where East West is now, the guy that John was working for, his name was Rick Adams, and he was an early internet pioneer. He had UUNet, which was an early search engine for the military and for medical. And he was getting involved in business with Mark Levinson, who is an audiophile who had a company called Cello. Mm. And Cello made very high-end EQs, and there was like a binaural head for a minute. There was a lot of equipment that they made that was very cool. So John called me up and said, do you want to go work at Cello? We're going to call it Cello at 6,000 Sunset. I was ecstatic, and I said yes, but I loved Buddy and Pat. I, I felt bad about leaving Soundcastle, and I had written like a resignation letter on my computer. And I came, on a Friday, I was just sort of writing a draft and hadn't sent it. Yeah, you had CC mail then, right? It wasn't even really email. Right. It was in company mail. 
And I came in on Monday morning and my boss had read the draft. <laughs> Pat had read the draft. And I just said, look, I said, it's a lot of money and it's a new opportunity for me. And they were very cool about it. They wished me well. And I went to cello in 98, December of 98, where I stayed till 05. Then Rick closed the studio. Rick Adam closed the studio. John was gone. John ran the label. There was a label. John ran the label for about a year and John was out and back to independent producing after about a year. And the label and the studio were two separate companies, which was a good thing because I got to stay. <laughs> and then in 05, Cello closed, which should, you'd have to have five podcasts to encapsulate the trajectory and stress involved in that whole debacle. But suffice to say, it ended up being a blessing in disguise because he bankrupted it. It went into the receivership of the court. We were very busy. We didn't go bankrupt because we weren't busy. He was being sued by someone else, and we were sort of a small part of his portfolio. Mm. So in order to not have the real estate and this part of his assets be affected, he filed bankruptcy, and basically everything got wrapped in plastic. And I tried to get a lot of buyers. I, I went to Rick Rubin and the Stones and a lot of people. I even tried to buy it myself, which thank God I didn't. That was good that I didn't because it would have been much more than I could have afforded or handled financially. But what happened was during that time when it closed in 05, I had to relocate all our tenants. I had 10 tenants, Wendy and Lisa and Pat Leonard and Jim Scott was at Studio 2. It was a lot. It was a lot of logistics. The cello years were just unbelievably cool. Hmm. And a lot of successes. Tom Petty, the Peppers, the Stones, so many people. It was just the height of rock and decent budgets. But when it closed in 05, I managed Sage and Sound for a minute. Mark and Stefan Fantini it was around the corner on Gordon. It's no longer here. It got torn down about a year ago. They brought me on part-time, but I, I can't do anything part-time, so I was there all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of my clients at cello, God bless them. You know, Jerry Finn came in. He's no longer with us, but he came in and booked nine months with AFI. Joe McGrath, who was his engineer, who'd been an assistant for me at Breadstone. See, it's all a tiny little nepotistic. Yeah. You know what I mean? Where if you're lucky, you meet in the middle with your people. People, Joe Ciccarelli, Mark Needham, oh, yeah. a lot of people were very supportive at Sage and Sound. And then I got a call from Tina Clark who I had given that $500 credit to, you know, 12 years earlier. And she wanted me to come run Firehouse in Pasadena. So I went to, dude, Firehouse was just so cool. Mm. Probably one of the easier gigs I ever had after such stress at cello. You know, at cello, I had five rooms. I had 10 tenants. I mean, it was, it was a major enterprise. At Firehouse was two rooms. Oh, it was like a cakewalk for you. The challenge was getting people to drive to Pasadena, but I had oh, a jazz yeah. client base and TV and a lot of, you know, everywhere you go, if you're doing it right, you make friends and the next place you go, that's people go with you. <laughs> I've been really lucky. So yeah, I came back in 2010 to East West, which was cello, which is 6,000. And I've been here ever since. And Tina's my client here now. Tina flies out from Atlanta and books here and out. Oh, because she doesn't have Firehouse anymore. Doesn't have Firehouse anymore. She lives in Atlanta. So she flies out and she's like the queen of the divas too. Like Patty LaBelle, Chaka Khan, Patty Austin. I mean, Tina has Tina's a, a great producer. She was a drummer in her own right. She's Southern like me, Jackson, Mississippi. So there was an affinity there. Yeah, she's a badass. Huh. Yeah, she comes out here still. I want to clarify some things just from my own experience. Sure. So- I was in a band in the early 90s. We recorded with Larry Hirsch at Ocean Way. Okay. And we mixed what I believe was next door. Did you mix with Scott Litt? Who did you mix with? No, no, no. Larry mixed it, but okay. But I just remember Ocean Way occupying, is this right? It occupied the Western building and yeah. what is now so, East West? So, so United Western, United was at 6050 Sunset. Western was at 6,000 Sunset. They were together when they were United Western. Bill Putnam designed and built them. Uh -huh. Then they became Oshawa under Alan Sides, okay. who was a protege of Bill Putnam. Right. And Alan, Alan ran it when we were there. Yeah. Yeah. So the United side, the rooms are letters like A, B, C, you know, et cetera. Right. And the Western side, the rooms are numbers. So if you had come to this building to mix, you would have been in studios one, two, three, 
seven because there were seven rooms at Ocean Way. If you mixed at Ocean Way, you very likely mixed it in the 6,000 building, which became Cello, which is now East West. And when did the giant aesthetic change happen where it's like wide open with the lights and the way it is now? When did that happen? Well, that, and I, I have to give a huge shout out to my owner, Doug Rogers, my boss and my friend. So Doug had been my friend for a long time. East West Sounds was an established sound library company. They'd released stuff with Bob Claremountain and done all these things. And I was not really that hip to sound libraries. I don't didn't know that much about sample libraries, but they, they were very successful and they recorded all over the world. So when Cello closed in my effort to try to save it, me going to different people, I went to Doug and I said, look, I said, you record all over the world. You have expensive offices in Beverly Hills. Why don't you just take over 6,000? He's an audiophile and totally respectful and knows what this building is, both historically, acoustically, et cetera, fan of Bill Putnam. He was a producer in his own right. And he's from New Zealand, in New Zealand and in, in Europe and, and in L.A., and I went to him and I said, you got to buy it. You got to save it. Please, please help me, help me. And he said, no, the, and the building's 100 years old. And, and the building had a lot of issues. It had a leaky roof. When it was cello, it was not fancy. And our owner, though he was a billionaire, we were on our own. He bought us and that was it. We hit the ground running. So we had to survive from the receivables, from the bookings, which was tough at times, even though we were busy, cash flow, et cetera, things like that. But we were very busy, but the building had been you know, it had been unoccupied for a year. Mm. So there was roof damage. There was air conditioners that needed to be replaced. It was funky. He was thinking it was too much of a challenge, but God bless him. He went to the bankruptcy court almost exactly a year to the day that it closed. And he went and he put a bid in with the bankruptcy court. There was an auction and there were people trying to buy just the gear and stuff like that. And he wanted the whole package. He wanted the real estate and everything inside. So he made an offer and he bought it and he got a really good deal. He's just a super Renaissance guy. I mean, he's into music. He's into all things fine. Cars, art, music, design, architecture. So he said, it needs to have a facelift, needs a makeover. Mm -hmm. And I was still at Firehouse. He said, I'm going to hire Philippe Stark, the French designer. And I'm like, oh, that'll be cool. I just wanted new roofs and new bathrooms. You know, I was like, you just, yeah. The uh, people who remember the bathrooms at Cello and Oceanway and Western, they were they were rude. The men's room was like a trough. <laughs> but uh, he had a vision, you know, and he brought Philip Stark in, and he was super respectful to me, even though I wasn't working for him yet. We were friends, and I would come over, and he'd be like, oh, we're thinking about changing this, and. He never really wanted to change the rooms, but there were little little changes he wanted to make. And I was like, no, you can't do that. I'm like, people are too superstitious. I go, even if you don't think it affects it acoustically, we, we won't get our clients back. The Rick Rubens and, and Bob Rocks, they want the sound that they know. And so he was cool. And Philip Stark was totally cool. Philip Stark's analogy was that it was a jewel, it was a jewelry store. I can't remember what he said, with five jewel boxes. You know, and those for the studios. Right. So really what they did was they ripped out the second story, which wasn't anything other than moderate production space. They weren't real studios. And so they opened up the main lobby to the Bow Trust. It's a Bow Trust building. It's 100 years old, which I read with beams. I like it because it's way less claustrophobic. I mean, it's. Oh, yeah. I love walking in there. Yeah, no, it's super, super cool. I mean, for for some of our clients, I remember Ben Montench walking in and, and Leonard Cohen, because it's kind of dark now. It's like a hotel. It's like a nightclub when you first walk in and there's the crazy lobby with the Philip Stark signature things, like a, a life-size horse lamp with a lamp coming out of its head. Just cool kind of kitsch stuff, which I love. I mean, I'm blessed. It's like working in an art gallery. Yeah. But the rooms are exactly the same as they were when they were built in the 60s. I mean, the main difference is Studio One has a lighting rig in it. And there was a vocal booth in one that was problematic at best during Oshway because you had to walk through it to get to the lounge. <laughs> so that vocal booth is no longer there. But other than that, it's the same. And what was the roof is now a deck with a garden. I mean, they made excellent use of the space. There's a full kitchen. The bathrooms are stunning. 
Yeah, no, it's it's beautiful, and all the private lounges are cool. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm lucky. I just yeah, I, I love that Disney. the jewel box thing because yeah. I don't know how you would phrase it. It's almost like a acoustical, historical acoustics. You can't change yeah. that because no matter how badass you make it, people get freaked out because they're like, oh, it's not the same. Well, and truthfully, straight up, there are people that have tried to replicate these rooms, and I'm sure the engineers at Abbey Road and Capitol feel the same way. You can go in and you can make the measurements and you can try to do it, but you're not going to have the asbestos tile that's here, which is really key to the acoustic sound. Yeah, Don't pull it up. Leave it alone. But there's just a lot of things you can't get anymore. And Putnam was a genius. Bill Putnam was tight with money. And it had been a grocery store in the early 1900s. Then it was a radio audience theater, et cetera. It was a casino in the 40s, but the grocery store doors, the big heavy doors that are like thick with wood and foam and glass and metal, whatever they had in them when they were for freezers, for walk-in freezers, there's still the doors on the back of the library of Studio 1, 2, and 3. So he just utilized what he had, the pegboard in Studio 1, mm-hmm. you know, acoustically with all the little holes in it. And there are baffles, there are panels in Studio 1 that he nailed into place. They're all arranged the way he wanted them. They don't move anymore. He he nailed them in place in Studio 1. And then all the rooms, Studio 3, we call it the Pet Sounds room. I mean, that's the smallest of the tracking rooms. It's one room, no isolation. When I first came here, I, you know, having worked in Red Zone and Soundcastle, which were studios built in the 70s that had a lot of ISO boosts and stuff. I came here and I was like, I don't understand how this works. But I quickly learned that by building dog houses, using gobos, in Studio 3, you embrace the bleed. In Studio 3 still, it's, I always say it's small but mighty. It's one of my favorite rooms I've ever been in. So let me ask you some things that I bet a lot of my listeners who are smaller studio owners would love to know. Because you have this vast experience running studios. You know what to do, what not to do. So what are the mistakes that smaller studios typically make that you've seen or heard about where you just say, ah, typical, oh, they shouldn't have done that? You know, it's like any business. They get in over their head at the beginning with too many leases. They get out on a limb with with finances where they have extended their credit. I mean, you have to invest and you have to buy gear, but my advice would be, first and foremost, know the market of the town that you're in, mm-hmm. whether it's advertising, it's a college town, that's always good. There's always music and bands to work with. And don't discount your importance in a smaller market. I always say this to people, if that's your vision and and you're an engineer and you want to own a studio and you have a dream, I say, by all means, go for it. Find a supportive bank. I would say the very first thing is develop a relationship with a bank because they're going to be the ones who are going to save your butt when you don't have payroll, extend you lines of credit. Mm -hmm. It's really finances. Finances are really, really key and set yourself up. I was mentioning earlier, set yourself up with a budget, allow for marketing and social media always, but in the first year for a push, keep control of your fixed expenses, know what your nut is. That is the most important thing is to know what your overhead is. Know what your overhead is, and then you can set your rates realistically and make money, and you can give deals and do marketing. And most people who know me, my marketing approach is to have drinks with people. I have parties. I have like happy hour, go out and spend 500 bucks, invite your local business owners become friends with the people at the Chamber of Commerce, utilize the local school, college paper, get an article. There's no wrong way to grassroots grow your business. It really is just making people aware of you. Yeah. So what you're saying really is become part of the community. Oh, absolutely. Become part of the community. Know who your neighbors are. Have a good relationship with a plumber, electrician, (laughs) a roofer. One of the things that people don't think about when they open a studio is air conditioning. Have a really good air conditioning company because the air conditioning is so specialized in what we do. There's a company here in LA. I've worked with them since I started in the mid 80s and I would never change. It's A.H. Flores and Son and I recommend them to anyone in California or LA. They understand how to route ducting so that there's no noise and how to stabilize the unit so that when it kicks on and goes off, there's no rumble. There's no sound. You know, that's that's key. But yeah, to small studio owners, I would say 
ingratiate yourself to the community. Remember that people don't have to be famous. You want clients that can pay and you want to nurture relationships. Everybody has a freshman effort. Everybody makes a first record. So you're in a small market. Then you have a local artist that comes to you and does a record. They could become huge. They could be the next Beatles. And if you're cool to them, chances are, if they'd like what they got, they'll be loyal and they'll come back. A loyalty is very much mm. a byproduct of good relationships and being cool. I've been really lucky. In this current state of where things are at, are there still challenges to a studio like East West? Oh my God, dude, it's so crazy. It's like same circus, different, more clowns. You know, it's <laughs> it's basically when I started, we were referencing like take one and even during the late 80s, video killed the radio star. That's all I'm going to say from like 1983 or 1984 because budgets changed and a much larger section of budget went to marketing than necessarily recording and technological changes notwithstanding. Right. To me, the difference now is it's a computer instead of a tape machine, but the capture process, different tools, same concept. You know what I mean? You're, mm -hmm. you're tracking, you're overdubbing, you're mixing. We don't do mastering here, but it's the same. And if you understand what clients need and what they need to do, for someone like me, for a studio like this, obviously it has cred, it has history, a reputation, but at the same time, it's changed names several times. Mm -hmm. And it's changed names like four times. So the initial challenge when I came back in 2010 was to explain to people that it wasn't just private because a lot of people thought that it was just for East West Sounds use for the sample library company. Oh, no, that's not true. We're two separate companies. They book maybe two weeks a year. We do all the libraries here, but it doesn't take much time. So the challenges are mainly that instead of knowing 10 busy producers or engineers, now you got to know 50. And, and the people that book time it's actually better than it ever was because God bless the internet and God bless email for marketing <laughs> and email blasting. But this is another misnomer for you, you small studios when you start out. Artists aren't the ones who book time, okay? They may sometimes, you know, occasionally. Engineers and producers are your clients. They're working all the time. An artist makes one record a year, maybe every two years. A&R people book time, artist managers book time, artists occasionally book time directly, but it's rare. Business managers book time for artists, but really engineers and producers book time. So if the engineers and the producers feel comfortable in the acoustic space and they trust you and they know that you're gonna make sure everything's cool, it's all about trust, mm -hmm. then that's, that's your market. Your market is those engineers and producers that can utilize your spot. Wow. Yeah, people think that it's got to be famous people. They're like, oh, I want Lady Gaga to call me. Well, Lady Gaga doesn't book her own time. Right. <laughs> be friends with her manager. Have you ever been tempted to go into producer engineer management? You know, people have asked me that a lot and artist management too. And uh, no offense, but no. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that just sounds like a fucking nightmare. Yeah. I mean, I love producers and engineers, obviously. And maybe when I retire from the studio, maybe that's what I'll do, something like that. But I think there's enough people that do that that I love, you know, Adam Katz at Next Wave and Jeremiah Grabber at GPS and yeah. Kelly, Kelly Glansberg, who's amazing, was Kelly Musgrave, Kelly Musgrave Glansberg. She was a studio manager, so she, she understands the process. She's great. But there's a lot of great producer, engineer, managers. Yeah, that's the other thing. That's what your other hits. And this is the cool thing about the producer engineer management companies is instead of when I started, you had to go directly to the producer and it was hard to get their phone numbers. There was no email. You had to call Pat Leonard or Bob Rock. They're like, who the fuck are you? You right. know what I mean? So the producer engineer management companies came along pretty early on. Sandy Robertson at World's End, one of the oh, first, who yeah. managed John Porter, by the way. Yeah. Moira Marie managed by Clay. A lot of the, the greatest, I mean, you know, I still work with Bennett Kaufman and BK Management, Mike Cotto, the engineer producer management companies, mommy loves you. Yeah. Okay. I was going to say, because now you have access to a roster of 30 to 40 engineers and producers. Yeah. And you get to them through two people. 
<laughs> yeah, so yeah. So you want to dine the managers and they bring their people. Yeah. Yeah. Jeremiah has reached out to me to just say, hey, you know, let me be your conduit to our, our stable of, of producers and engineers. And Oh, he's amazing. Yeah. And- he's, he's so cool. And he has an A&R background. A lot of these people had A&R background. Bennett Kaufman was an A&R guy at RCA. Jeremiah worked at A&M. I mean, they understand both sides of the world. And in that sense, I will say that they're cool to the studio. Like they're repping the engineer producer and they have to do their best by them. But they do understand that the studio has to make money and they're pretty considerate when it comes to grinding. I mean, I'll give anybody a favor if they need it, Mm -hmm. knowing that when they don't need it and they have a better budget, I would expect them to show like favors. So it usually works out, to be honest. I mean, most people are pretty... It's going to surprise you, but there are a lot of people in the music business that have integrity, <laughs> contrary to popular belief. Yeah, I mean... I hope I'm one of them, but yeah. Well, oh, I mean, between you and Paula, everybody, without a doubt, speaks very highly of you both. She's one of my best friends, and she's been my competitor for almost 40 years. I learned so much from her, and she's just... Uh, we have different styles. Mm-hmm. But Rose really kind of imparted a lot of the procedures and a lot of the policies that we follow now. The Beatles, you can thank for the 12-hour day. That's a Beatle thing. Really? Yeah. But it's a challenge, though. People, okay, anybody listening to this podcast, if you're an engineer, producer, or an amp person, if you're anybody that books studio time, could you please try to book before the night before? (laughs) Because now what happens is, you know, I've been doing this a long time. And I have an incredible assistant, Keith Munson. You know, he's badass. And he's an engineer as well. And it's 24-7. Like I said, same circus, different clowns. But I'm answering emails at midnight, which is okay. Email me. But at the same time, like, people are booking string dates the next day. Like, what the hell? So I will say that when I started, there was much more pre-planning. People booked further in advance. And they booked a lot longer. Mm-hmm like months to do records. I occasionally will get those bookings. Shout out to Ryan Hewitt for bringing me the Chili Peppers mix during COVID, 10 months. Love you. But, <laughs> he was uh, just back on a little while ago. Oh, it's the best. Yeah. But generally speaking, he also was an alum of cello. He was an assistant at cello. So for him to come back 20 years later and be the co-producer mixer, on it, you know, it's all, everybody's coming home. Like I said, I train my clients. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you never know when they're going to come back. Oh, dude, and always treat your alum great. Don't don't not give them the red carpet gold treatment. Yeah, be nice to them. Right. Be nice. Basically, I would say that the hard challenge now, and if you're an NR person listening to this, do not bristle. The people that we deal with at the labels now, a lot of them don't know what we do. They 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 never had the opportunity to be part of the production record making process. It's not their fault. It's just a different world. So, you know, when I started, you had, you know, you had Herb Alper, you had Joel Moss, you had Clive Davis, you had uh, Ahmed Erdogan. You know, these people knew how records were made. Yeah, They were in the studio with artists, with engineers and producers, and they had a concept of the sensitivity and the nature of artists, which I'm sure the A&R people do now. Not just A&R people, but what a lot of people don't understand about the process is they'll be like, oh, well, we don't need an engineer. And I'm like, well, you wouldn't get on a plane without a pilot. That's a great analogy. <laughs> well, it's true. They'll be like, well, the assistant engineer. I'm like, the assistant engineer is the flight attendant. <laughs> okay. The assistant engineer is going to help you, but they're not going to fly the plane. They don't get paid enough to fly the plane. Wow. You know, so- that's, the, that's the quote of the century, Candace, right there. <laughs> Do you feel, based on what you just said, is there some element of the the music industry that broke at some point where people aren't a hundred percent clear on how it all works, how the, how the studio system works. I mean, I think that rates never didn't change for a long time and gear was very expensive and the investment in building a studio was very expensive. So that was one sort of failing on the studios part as, as a model because studios are not, you know, there's no union. There are some that are owned by big corporations, but generally speaking, They're owner-operated, mom-and-pop single businesses. And so along the way, maybe we failed in our model. 
but it is what it is. Mm -hmm. So that said, you can try to reinvent a wheel, but there's no need. I mean, the truth of the matter is we're hotels with technology. We're here to provide a service. We're here to guarantee your privacy and to technically stay ahead of the advances to have the tools at your service that help you make the best possible record. So I think the thing that, yes, it has changed and broken several times. I've seen it happen in the late 80s. I've seen it happen in the early aughts where you get people that are being counters, no offense to you people in finance, but you get people in the finance that are calling the shots. And that that has been the downfall of many a great studio because a place like United, which is no longer yeah. one of the studios in New York, I give a shout out to everybody that keeps the studio going. People would think that I would be happy when a studio closes. I would never be happy when a studio closes because it's an indicator of an unhealthy unhealthy landscape. But I really, really think that you can stay on top by providing great service. I lucked out. You know, I've got acoustic spaces bar bar none. Mm -hmm. So I'm fortunate. Are you going to record a 70-piece orchestra in your house if you're an artist? It's unlikely. Can you record in your bathroom? I say this all the time. You can. It's about the song. So if the song is good and the performance is good, can you do it on less and make it great? You can. But I think you'll realize when you come into a facility like this, even if you just book time for a day to track drums or whatever that is, and then you leave to go or whatever, do it elsewhere at your home studio, the enhancement that you're going to get from the acoustic space, the room as instrument is incomparable. But yeah, the... The people in the industry, they need to make it their business to understand the process. There's a book called Recording Techniques. The 10th edition just came out. Yeah. The 10th, and I'm just going to say right now, read it. Huh. Because if you work at a record label, you need to understand what we do. You need to understand how to take the artist's vision from the beginning to the end. And it's not just touring and it's not just t-shirts. That's right. It's making the record. Do yourself a favor. See if they'll let you sit in quietly in the back of the room while they're making the record and don't be a pain in the ass. Yeah. Well, we have to continue to educate those outside of the system what it is we all do and why it's important. So, so important. If you love music, no matter where you listen to music, on streaming platform, wherever you listen to music, if we stop recording it and capturing it, you're fucked. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So be reverent, be respectful, honor the people in front of and behind the glass that bring that vision, the artist's vision to fruition. For the audience, I'm going to put a link to, because we didn't talk about it, but Candace has a great new podcast called Trade Secrets that you have to have a listen to because she has some cool folks on there, some who have been on this show. And I'll send you a link. I'll send you the actual link. But it's on Spotify. It's on Google. It's on Apple. Basically, if you search it, it doesn't come up right away because there's a travel podcast called Trade Secrets that jumps ahead of it. Yeah. But if you look up my name, which is spelled with an A, C-A-N-D-A-C-E, Candace Stewart, yeah. and Trade Secrets, it'll pop up. You'll find it. But yeah, I'll send you the link and you can, uh, can post it. I'm just happy that I got to speak with you because... You, and I have to speak to Paula as well at some point. Oh, yeah, she's the best. You all provide a perspective that I think not only is it critical, and I know that a lot of my studio owners, listeners who are tuning in are just like absorbing everything you say. Remember, it's not about you. I've actually had small studio owners say to me like, what if I don't like the music? Like, are you serious? <laughs> It's, it's it's not about that. It's about you're providing a service, and if the money is green, you do absolutely your best. It's what not a, you're not the you're not the arbiter of musical taste. You right. know what I'm saying? Exactly. <laughs> well, Candace, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. It was super super fun, and there's no one way to end up. And I ended up in my dream job, and I love it. So well. From everything that everybody says, you're damn good at it. So it's it's great to have you on. So thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me. No, thank you. 
Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Candace Stewart here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. I want to encourage you to leave a five-star review at your podcast aggregator. And of course, tell an audio friend all about this show so we can have everybody listening. That would be ideal. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdell on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the great Chuck Smith there with that voice at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And always feel free to email me, matt at workingclassaudio.com. Until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.